From religion to wrestling, gumbo to grits, politics to poetry, and all things southern in between, this is Take on the South. Produced by the Institute for Southern Studies and hosted by the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of South Carolina, Take on the South examines the highs and lows of the American South, examines the truths and fictions of the country's most distinctive region, and picks the brains of some of its most accomplished students. To understand the South, you need to take it on, and that's what we'll be doing. Join us as we Take on the South. Welcome to Take on the South, the podcast of the Institute for Southern Studies at the University of South Carolina. I'm Matt Simmons, the Assistant Director of the Institute, and I'm going to be your host today. What happens when a Japanese immigrant comes to the most notorious prison in the South, maybe even in the entire country? What happens when that individual creates a library that is an oasis of calm that he rules with an iron thumb? This is the story of Frankie San, one of the more interesting untold stories of faith and criminal justice reform in American history. To tell that story today, I have joining me two individuals, Shannon Smith, the director of the Crumley Archives, located on the campus of the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary here in Columbia. Ms. Smith is also an adjunct instructor in the Religious Studies Department here at the University of South Carolina. Also with us is Scott Reeves, an assistant archivist at the Crumley Archives. He's also the producer and writer of a forthcoming documentary he's making with Fisher Films on the Frankie Sands story. The working title of that documentary is Prisoner by Choice, the Frankie San story. Mr. Reeves and Ms. Smith also worked to put together a project called The Least of These, documenting 50 years of Frankie Sands' ministry to South Carolina prisoners. This project was produced by the Crumley Archives. Shannon, Scott, thank you all for joining us here on the show today. Thank you for having me. Well, let's first start out. Uh, Shannon, as the director of the Crumley Archives, what in the world is the Crumley Archives? So the Crumley Archives is a regional archives of the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, the ELCA. The ELCA is divided up into regions, and this particular region um, includes the entire southeast, from Virginia all the way down to the Caribbean, all the way west to Mississippi. So Virginia, the Carolinas, Georgia, Tennessee, Florida, Bahamas, again, all the way down to the Caribbean. We maintain the Southern Lutheran history of these states, of these synods and regions, history that reaches back to 1666. Fantastic. Fantastic. So it's so the Crumley Archives is an archive of the history of Lutheranism here in the Southeast. Precisely, yes. Very good, very good. So before we get to talking about how this project comes into being and how the Frankie Sand story comes into being, first let's sort of set the stage here for the Central Correctional Institute. Am I saying, am I... That's it, yeah. Better known as CCI or uh, colloquially around here, or the, the state, the state uh, prison. Yeah, so um, it got its beginning, 1866, so, so during a time of um, despair. I mean, you think of the mood of the South during this period. 
and you're constructing during reconstruction a place that is to to be one of of retribution you know despite the name the central corrections institute that was its reputation not not a place of remediation so much as as one of retribution um one in 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 one unpublished manuscript one prisoner says that the the mood there was one of just sheer brutality um he talks about the the air smelling of acute fear of, of a sticky cloud of acute fear and that those who lived there became outcasts their life behind the walls became a pure living hell that they in all probability would not survive and so for 127 years, a pretty long period of time, um, you've, you've got this um, massive operation in the heart of downtown Columbia, where Canal Side is now, that, that community. Right there that, on the Congaree River. Yeah. With that, you got that swanky sort of apartment complex exactly, there. Exactly, yeah. exactly. If, if you were not, if you've only lived in Columbia for the last 25 years or so, you would have never known that it existed. It looked like a medieval fortress, something out of fairy tales. Very, very foreboding. Um, I, as a kid, I can remember. And you grew up here in Columbia. I grew up here in Columbia, yeah. And I can remember driving over to Casey to visit family, and you could see the inmates outside. Wow. And something that looks, you know, very foreboding, very formidable and, and, and medieval. Um, and, and just getting this impression, you know, that that there's a there's a lot of hardship there there's a lot of despair there must be a lot of brutality and so this place existed for 127 years before it, it closed its doors in 1993 but not without um some semblance of redemption so we've talked about this place being a place of retribution and and, and little remediation but there was reform in its final decades and this is documented in, in some pieces. We'll talk about Frankie San, obviously, today, and, and he was key in, in that Reformation, for sure. Um, we know that, that it was a place of squalid conditions, um, overcrowding. I think in its history, over 80,000 men were there, um, nearly 250 executed. Um, uh, um, officially, it, it, there, of course, were many, many murders, many suicides. Uh, we're told that the original uh, building, the, the what was called Cell Block 1, was five stories high and was built without a roof. And you think about how essential roofs are to show, I mean, every society that builds a shelter, it's going to come with a roof. Um, so, so just the sort of squalid conditions, um, again, the mood just, just being one of despair, one of desperation. How could it be really anything else? And, and Frankie was uh, one of those key figures who, were, were going, who, who brought hope to these men. Wow. So it's a, a terrible, terrible prison. It sounds like, and while there was a reform movement in its later decades, in the 1960s, 70s, moving forward, um, I, I guess that would be about the right time. Yeah, yeah. As, especially had Ellis McDougall came in um, in the 60s and 70s. Um, he was eventually like the director of prisons. I can't remember his original titles or kind of where he ended up, but um, he was actually uh, well, 
mention him because he connects with Frankie and Frankie's stories. Um, he was kind of the person in charge that that originally brought Frankie in, um, and was uh, I think Frankie would have listed him among his his friends and, and a great help to what he did. So. Right, great. So let's just jump into it then. Uh, Frankie San is the most interesting part of the story for our purposes today. Who was Frankie San? Where is he from? Uh, we said he's a Japanese immigrant, but but there's a there's a I've talked with this I've talked with y'all about this uh, already. It's, this is one of the more interesting stories I've ever heard. So who is this man, and how does he end up as this prison reformer, prison minister? How does this all happen? Where does he come from? So um, he's born Kyozu Miyashi uh, in, I believe, in Tokyo. He lived in Tokyo. Um, he was about 14 or 15. He was drafted It's World War II. So he was born late 1920s? Yeah, yeah, born late 1920s. He's drafted as a young teenager into the Japanese Navy. Um, he worked at various jobs, but uh, many young men were being trained to actually kind of be something of a surface kamikaze. I've heard he was trained like on, on foot, or but I've also heard that he was being trained to be like in a miniature one-man sub to, to basically, you know, drive into the side of enemy ships. Okay, so something like, you know, a suicide, you know, bomb, or, you know, just have a small, tiny, you know, a, a submersible. Right. Take that straight with explosives on it into the side of enemy ships, just like the kamikaze planes, but just right, yeah. right under the water. Yeah. So my understanding is that's what his his training was moving him towards. Yeah. And he had really genuinely believed uh, that the emperor was a god. He talks about in some of his story, as he told it, of praying to the emperor and not getting prayers answered. So he and was being, shaped by, by, by the Shinto cult, by the yeah. post-major restoration Shinto yeah. culture of the deification of the emperor and all this. Yeah, yeah. Um, so kind of a mixture of some Buddhism with that, but um, very much expected kind of this the emperor to be a god. So uh, it's interesting, I mean, kind of a side history, it's interesting to look at young men coming out of Japan about that period because everything they believed in and had been taught and had kind of almost been, you know, indoctrinated with right is just collapsed with the with the dropping of the bombs so yeah so he really lost hope uh, at one point he tried to commit suicide um that obviously failed um and then he he heard one day a song coming from a building and he went in and it was a church and it was a hymn and he heard, hears about this god who gave his life for you and and so frankie Instead of me giving my life for my God. Right, right. So Frankie, really for his whole life, he's not a, I don't mean to, he's not a simplistic man. He's a very intelligent man. He's a very thoughtful man. Um, he seems incredibly innocent and like he could be easily taken advantage of, but he's was, um, I mean, sadly now he's, he's dealing with the end stages of Alzheimer's. But in his prime, he was a very sharp man. He kept a, you know, he kept a control over the work he did in the prisons. Um but that said, his faith in some ways was very simple. It was, this is the God. This Jesus is the God that gave his life for me and rose. Uh, instead of asking me to you know, give up my life to keep him safe, I think I could serve that God. So he became a Christian um, and, and began learning more about that. Um, some of the people who had, he had met suggested that he come to, they had connections to what was then Columbia Bible College, was now CIU. Um, then Frankie just, he, he, well, he, he spent, he was still in, in Japan for a while. He learned, um, 
He learned English, you know, thick accent English, but he learned English and he actually ended up helping a woman from America, an older woman who was traveling in Japan. He had enough English that he could help her get around. Um, well, some of the people that he had met in, in kind of his, his journey to a Christian faith suggested that he come to South Carolina to what was in Columbia Bible College. Um, and he, he didn't fit. He was really struggling. Um, there just wasn't... I mean, he made this journey. It's really incredible. He sails into to California. He's only allowed to have $100 with him. So he had to work his way across the country. Um, in the you know in the late 60s, $100 went a lot longer than, further than it does today. But you know, still, it's a long trip. But he sails across the Pacific Ocean, lands in California, has $100 in his pocket, and, and, and then he's got to make it to Columbia, South Carolina to go to Bible college. Right. Here. So he made it to... Uh, Columbia Bible College really didn't fit in. Um, a lot of the students just didn't know what to do with him. They referred to him as the Jesuit because wow. he he wore his his black kimono and his wow. his wood sandals everywhere. Like there was kind of no sense of assimilation into the culture. Um, Even after traveling three thousand miles yeah. across the country, he was still so and very and, yeah. And, and these students, you know, different time period, they just didn't know what to do with him. Um, well, that woman he had helped in Japan had a son who was traveling through the area. Um, and she said, oh, you're going to South Carolina. There was this nice, you know, young Japanese man. He helped me out a lot when, you know, getting around Tokyo. Um, could you check on him? So her son checked on him and the, found out he's really just sad. He's, he doesn't fit in. He doesn't have any connections. He doesn't have any friends. He's kind of at a loss of what to do. He's struggling with his classes because his English is still not, I mean, you know, he can get around and get across the country, but doing academic work, in, you know, in a, in, in a language you're really weak in was tough for him. So that woman's son had friends in, in military chaplaincy who were had connections to um, Dr. Reinerts, who was at that time the, I guess the, what was it called? The president? President. President of the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary. And so Dr. Reinertz decided to reach out to Frankie, helped him out. They brought him, he had a bachelor's degree from Japan. So they brought him into, um, into the, the religious education program, the master's in religious education, not, not the MDiv. Um, and he, he went through that program. Um, and Dr. Reinertz paired him with this student from Texas who his, his wife, who was in our what we're working on for the documentary, we've talked with her. Um, Peter Setzer uh, was this young man, became Frankie's like best friend. Reinerts made them roommates and asked Peter to help Frankie, you know, adjust. So um, Sue Setzer, Peter's wife, now tells us the story. Peter's passed away about a year ago. But she said, you know, here's this big, tall cowboy from Texas studying at the Southern Seminary, going around everywhere with this, you know, uh, Frankie's not a tall guy. For Frankie's a short, you know, slim young man from Japan, and they went around. They became best friends, I right? And um, Peter helped Frankie just make it through seminary. But Peter would always tell people that Frankie did far more for him, just because of his genuine and simple love for for God, for Jesus, for people. Um, that was just what drove 
Frankie and, and in kind of in making connections at the seminary, he just, he came alive. And he ended up getting a job in the summers at Angelo's, this little restaurant right up the road from, from the seminary, there on main street. And, um, he'd see these buses go by and he's like, what are, what are these buses? And he found out they're prison buses. So he starts going out and like bowing and waving to the men on these buses to just show them a kindness because as, as, um, you know, reading about Frankie. I mean, the, the way I found Frankie was reading his newsletters because he spent, as the project we did said, 50 years in prison ministry eventually. We're, we're getting to that point now in the story, but um, reading, you know, his story written in his hand and all these newsletters that we, we have at the archives. Yeah, and we'll circle back around those newsletters here in a bit, so yes. But he, um, you know, he he talks about just how... how um, well, Peter wrote an article and talks about how Frankie would get frustrated with his studies, but he would say, I don't know this, I don't know that, but I know Jesus, right? And so this drive to kind of Jesus was this person, he saved me, this is the thing he said. So the thing he said was, you know, whatever you do for the least of these, you do for me. So Frankie just took that to heart. He was going to show kindness to these least men in society, these men that were stuck on these prison buses. Uh, you know, long story, a little bit short, he, he starts getting letters because the men on the bus are like, you know, sending letters to this, you know, Japanese guy at, at Angelo's. And he starts writing letters back and forth to prisoners. And he finally goes to the prison and asks for permission and makes his way up to Ellis McDougal. Ends up getting a job teaching for the prison. Um, McDougal had started some, had gotten money to start some education programs. Um, and then uh, he he spent some time teaching and then they got some money to set up a library and they asked Frankie to do that and Frankie actually thought that they were trying to get rid of him um, he thought they were trying to work him out of the teaching and out of the prison and one of his friends is like no Frankie they, they like what you're you're doing with these these men in prison you're, you're impacting them in a positive way um, they want you to do this library I think you should do it so he ends up kind of against his better wishes setting up this library in the Central Correctional Institute that has I mean we have photos of the prison just generally which is kind of stone walls concrete floor bars you know litter um, and you, you get pictures of this library and Frankie has it like decorated it's colorful there are comfortable chairs um, he's got like an aquarium. He's got like a big lizard. He's got birds. He's got a parrot that he walks around with on his shoulder. Um, that, you know, the, the people are teaching him how to say things. Um, yeah, fascinating. So, you know, I'll, I want to come and talk about, there's a lot of great things you brought up that I want to come and talk about. Um, but first, uh, Shannon, do you, have, do, we, do you have any sense, I don't know if you know this, but did the Lutheran Church have any pre-existing relationship with Japan? Did he understand anything about was was Lutheranism something that would have been on his radar? I mean, he's coming for a sort of evangelical Bible college at first. Uh, was there and when the when President Reinhardt of the seminary you know pulls Frankie over, is there some sort of Lutheran Japanese backstory uh, going on? So there is within the Carolinas, the South Carolina and North Carolina synods are going to have a relationship with Japan. Um, there was a university established there, missionaries from both states going um, over to Japan, helping out um, widows and orphans. We have lots of manuscripts in the archives, lots of diaries of, of men who spent decades 
in Japan. We don't uh, know from Frankie's history that he would have had a relationship with any Lutherans in Japan. I guess it's just sort of um, kids, kismet and divine providence that Frankie would have found. But certainly the Lutheran Church in South Carolina, the seminary as well, would have recognized Frankie as a Japanese Christian. There were many Japanese students um, that had gone um, through programs at the Lutheran Seminary. So they would have had experience with Frankie and his culture. Great. So so that would help explain why he's going to be a better fit there than he is going to be at Columbia Bible College, now Columbia International University, where there's just a sense that he's just kind of a a fish out of water there, right? Right. They don't really know how to handle him. He doesn't really know how to handle this place. Um, and it's not that he wants to be an unkind necessarily. It's just a it's just a sort of awkward fit. But then he finds himself fitting in here much better at the at the at the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary. He makes friends with this cowboy who shows him around. Uh, he gets a he gets a job here at this restaurant, and he. I mean, you don't want to psychoanalyze anyone uh, unnecessarily, but I, I can't help but wonder. In addition to his theological convictions, this you know Jesus says. What you do for the least of me, the least of these you do also unto me. If there's a sense of what we were talking about earlier, this sense of absolute sort of alienation and confusion inside in the aftermath of what had happened in Japan post, you know, August 1945, uh, if there's a sense where I'm from a people group that is just completely been obliterated in some ways, you know, we have to rebuild from nothingness in a way, in many ways. Are these people in a similar sort of situation? So, I'm doing a kindness unto them, and this and and I love I love the kindness there. You know, you talk about here's this guy goes across three thousand miles of the United States and he never really assimilates, right? He wears his kimono and his wooden sandals, and then he he bows. He does this formal Japanese greeting to this man on this prison bus, who don't know him from they have no idea who this man is. But then eventually that touches someone. There's this deep cross-cultural human connection um, that has to do with how he is able to uh, uh, show them kindness, show them I see you as a human being. Um, these, and it sounds like the, what you were saying earlier about CCI, Shannon, this is not a place where anyone was humanized. No. This is a place where people were dehumanized. This is a place where it was, uh, what is the word you used earlier? It was not about rehabilitation. It was about Restitution. Retribution. Retribution. Retribution, right? And here he was not acting retributively, but acting with conciliation, acting with compassion, with understanding. With an Uh, air of forgiveness, almost. Sure. You know, to, to, uh, you know, in some sense, I guess, um, wishing to absolve them of some guilt by a bow. Yeah. Yeah, there's a sense of there's a sense of uh, that they're worthy of interaction. Yes, yes. Uh, yeah, which again, if you want to look at his, his his faith as being this very simplistic, as you say, not in a negative way, Scott, but in sort of the best construction of that, uh, this very simplistic faith he has, which is a sense of you know here the God I serve is the God who you know was the God of you know uh, lepers and tax collectors and prostitutes. Um, so these are. These are my people too, right? Which is going to get us into when he does finally get permission to start participating here in the prison and ministering in the prison there. Do we have any sense that there was pre-existing prison ministries here? Or, or, or how does Frankie get into that role? Has he been ordained at this point? 
Um, he wasn't ordained originally. He went in, like I said, he went in um, as something of a volunteer, okay. as a seminary student. He did some things. Um, he really went in in earnest as a teacher when McDougal started some of those programs. So because McDougal they, starting the reforms of the prison. Yeah. Um, McDougal is this reformist, and Frankie decides to ask to participate and be right. a part of these reforms. Right. Well, in a sense, I mean, not officially, but in a sense, it's, it's like these things are happening in parallel. Okay. So there's okay. there's overlap. Um, Frankie's not so much working in an institutional sense of like officially making reforms. He's He participates in some because he's there, he's trying to show love, yes. doors open, here are resources. So he can help, you know, he can help young men. You know, there's a story of... Um, a, a man who worked in the prisons who knew Frankie said, I came in one day and he was crying. He's like, Frankie, what's wrong? Somebody do something to you? He's like, no, no, this, this young man couldn't, when he came, he couldn't write his name and he finally wrote his name today. Wow. Right. So, um, he, he stepped into, you know, McDougal's making these programs, um, and those programs opened doors for Frankie to step into. Um, one of his favorite stories to tell us was of his becoming an American citizen because um, he when was did he already an American. He citizen? was already working. Right? I mean, this is different times, right? Now you don't have all the, uh, you know, just a different world as far as security and prisons and things like that. But um, somebody says you can't work here. You're not a citizen. You don't have the right kind of visa, and so. The prisoners started getting mad. You're going to make Frankie leave. You can't make Frankie leave. So the the, the prison you know administrators and all like, we got to work this out. So they they got him as they helped him get his citizenship like really quickly. He had he had to go through all you know. We've got you know paperwork on that letters back and forth from Reinerts at the seminary and Ellis McDougal and and uh, you know uh, immigration and, and naturalization. So he, he you know. But it happened because, in, in some sense, because the prisoners were like, "No, you have to keep Frankie here. You can't, you can't send him away." So he, he, um, he, he got his citizenship. And kept working. Um, he eventually moves from teaching to. I mean, he, like I said, he'd been volunteering. He moves into teaching. He moves from teaching to running this library in CCI. And well, um, well, let's talk about the library. So you briefly described it. You know, this place that Shannon said. Parts of it don't even have a roof, right? It's just absolute squalor. And then y'all show me some photographs of the library. It looks, I think my description was, um, these photographs from the 1970s of the library, it looks like you would expect a quality community college library to look, right? Like yeah, it yeah. looks really good and really comfortable. Nothing fancy, but very comfortable, very well-organized, very neat, very, there's a lot of care goes into the creation of it. And so beyond just the, you know, the, the, the pets there, you know, the lizards and the fish and the birds and all this, um, you've told him about, he, you know, he put on Christmas programs and he dressed up as Santa Claus. Oh yeah. Time. He would, he would go through the prison dressed like Santa Claus, handing out gifts, you know, that were, um, people within churches, within Lutheran churches would take collections up and, and he would take in candy and fruit. Um, and, and honestly, I mean, he was, he, when he got into his nineties, he became unable to actually go into the prison. Um, he, so he was in the prisons until he was a non he was about 90. Like, wow. he, yeah, he's, he's 93 now. Okay. Um, but I think, I think he quit going in when he's like 90 or 91. Wow. Um, but he still sends, like he, he's, he has friends who do kind of ministry too. 
death row and things. So he still sends in fruit. He, you know, he has money set aside for prison ministry. And you know, you asked me, was there kind of prison ministry going on? If you if you look at the history of it, I mean, there have always been here and there chaplains. You know, various churches will have chaplains and things like that. But um, I mean, for one thing, you have a shift in the way ministries are done in the 50s, 60s, right? You go from a local church doing local ministry to more and more these specialized ministries. So you don't want to compare apples and oranges. But at the same time, Frankie's almost ahead of his time because he's going into the prison. He doesn't have some kind of institution with a board and things like that. But he's going into this prison as a minister. Um, He eventually does get ordained, not as a full... um, priest, but as a, it's like a tent-making minister to the South Carolina prisons. He's ordained to a specific ministry. Okay, and by, and for those that might not be familiar with that terminology, when you say a tent-making minister, uh, what do you mean by that? So it goes back to kind of the book of Acts in the Bible where Paul, for a while, tra- traveling as a missionary, worked actually making tents to kind of pay his bills and to keep going. So he was not, so he was not, so this is, this is basically a situation where we use this example of St. Paul and the early church where uh, someone is not being paid for his work as a minister, right. but he has another vocation, he has another career outside of that, and that is what he uses to support himself as a minister. Right. So Frankie, interestingly, um, was working for the prison system, right, and this library director, education programs, and he was actually living on the prison grounds in like a guardhouse outside the not, not like in the, you know, not but in still, the... But still, but still, I mean, he's not in a cell somewhere. But, right. you know, he's on a... Um, and he was a bachelor. Yeah, he was didn't a bachelor. have a family to support. So, so any money that he's making... He really invested back. a lot of his own money back wow. into doing this ministry. But he also took collections from churches. People would gather up candy, gather up, you know, money for things. Um, but he ended up with a, with a Santa Claus suit. Um, he would go around dressed as Santa Claus, giving out gifts at Christmas... Um, some which he bought, some that churches contributed to. Um, so it, it's really, you know, it's, it's quite just amazing to think about that. You know, he, that, that's, it was just that kindness. And yet it wasn't, you know, it was, he did offer in some sense a forgiveness and a mercy, but it wasn't a sort of cheap thing. Like, oh, it doesn't matter what you've done in the sense of it doesn't matter. Yeah. Like, you, you didn't do anything wrong. It was more of no matter how wrong it is, you can, be, can, for, still be, forgiven, you can yeah. be forgiven of it. You can kind of have a new life. Um, you know, he, he met, he actually met and talked with and wrote letters with Pee Wee Gaskins, who was a famed South Carolina serial killer. So, so how did that interaction go? Um, and and uh, a gentleman that I've been talking to that was a, a friend of Frankie's, later who still knows Frankie um, he was telling me about it he said you know I asked Frankie once you know, before Pee Wee Gaskins was executed did he ever like repent of what he did did he ever and, and Frankie was like no no he, he had a very dark heart he, he never so Frankie didn't have this kind of delusional idea of hey you just got to let all these guys go you know um, there, we have letters where he appealed to governors for certain men on death row. Wow. But those men, he really believed, had repented, wanted to change. He, he so felt he's like, advocating for clemency. He's, he's for advocating for clemency. Wow. But he's not naive in thinking, you know, you just got to let everybody go. It wasn't anything like that. He, I mean, he had a very clear sense of you. you know, um, when, 
one prisoner like acted up in the library and Frankie kicked him out, right? Because he would do that. Huh. I mean, we have a sign in the archives that says something about if I find any more cigarette butts on the floor of the library, like I said, different times, uh, you know, no, no more movies for three weeks or something. I mean, something like that. You skip right over that. This implies that he's showing movies right, he to the show, prisoners he in the library. He was movies in the library. I mean, wow. this is before the days where everybody kind of has the TV or whatever, but, it, you know, uh, like we see in kind of modern prison. They they literally had not much of anything to do in the 60s and 70s. Um, so he would do things like show movies, but he would, you know, he would, it was very firm. He's merciful, but firm. But yeah, that one guy tells a story. He said, he kicked me out. And uh, he said, a few weeks later, Frankie comes around to my cell and says, I haven't seen you in the library in a while. He said, I thought you kicked me out. He's like, come back. You know, it was like, yeah, you do something stupid. You're going to get kicked out. You're going to get disciplined but that doesn't mean I'm done with you, yeah. right? Come back, make amends, get forgiveness was kind of his message at all points. And this is being shaped by his understanding of, of, his, of Christianity. Yeah, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just what shaped everything he did. And, and every, I've, I've talked to former inmates. Um, I've actually taught some summers in a program uh, in the prison and met some older prisoners uh, in my classes who knew Frankie way back when Frankie was, they came from CCI over to Kirkland or whatever, and they, they knew Frankie. And they, they all talk about him this way. Like he, they knew he loved him. He wasn't a pushover. Um, like nobody would threaten him because the other prisoners would like, I mean, he, you know, it wouldn't be nice. <laughs> and nobody would go after Frankie because he, he just was so loving. Um, that most of the prisoners are like, no one's ever cared for me this way, and I'm not going to throw that away. Even if I'm going to keep doing stupid stuff, I'm I'm not going to throw that away, right? Um, and and um, he he just really had this incredible impact. When they finally um, destroyed, when they finally closed down and, and tore down CCI, um, he was actually past retirement age, and. So they asked, like, kind of forced him to retire. He was about 72 or something. Um, I think most people had to retire at, like, 68, but he worked about four more years, and then they were closing down. So they said, no, you, you got to retire. So he retired, and then very shortly thereafter, uh, you had AIDS make its way into the prison on a large scale. I mean, we already had AIDS in the 80, late 80s, but this early 90s becomes a big deal. I mean, people are, you know, terrified of, of, of AIDS. They don't know how contagious is this? How do you catch it? And um, Frankie went back in as a volunteer and he would work in hospice with AIDS, AIDS patients. Like he literally, he went back in and he found out that like the AIDS patients were taken to meals as a group away from everybody else. Because like I said, everybody was scared. Like, how do you catch this? Do we don't... Um, and he just went in and sat down with the AIDS patients and ate with them and just was, you know, showed his, his kind of constant kindness to them. Um, he worked in, he worked in uh, hospice care with, with people dying from prisoners, you know, inmates dying from AIDS. So um, it just continued throughout his life. And like I said, he finally kind of had to stop going um, a couple, few years ago. I can't keep up with the years now because of COVID. I'm, I'm like, wait, we're in 2022. Yeah, yeah. The, <laughs> la, the, la, the last two years have taken three generations. But yeah. I, I think I think 2019 he went in to visit still a little bit. 
but after COVID, he hasn't he hasn't gone back. But like I said, he still sends things back to prisoners. So you're talking about someone who essentially refuses to see anyone as a waste throwaway person, um, and who doesn't see anyone as unredeemable. I mean, he goes and Pee Wee Gaskins, who is this absolutely infamous, notorious, incredibly violent, you know, terrifying serial killer um, in this state. He is ministering to him, trying to get him to change. And, yeah, I mean, and, and then and then he in the early 1990s when everyone is afraid, you know, walking down the same street as someone with AIDS is going to infect you with this terrible, incurable, at that point, virus. He's sitting there eating that, having lunch with him. Right, right yeah. And that's just the kind of guy um, that he is. And then even more, you know, you, you said at the beginning of the conversation, he's in his 90s now and he is uh, at the kind of, seems like late stage Alzheimer's uh, is, 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 uh, He's dealing with that right now. But even with that, there's still a sense of he has his duty to these people. Now, you said you said he was never, he was always a tent-making minister, right? He was never a parish priest, parish right, yeah. pastor. So he never had his own church. But, you know, pastor means shepherd, right? right. Were these prisoners, were these his sheep? Then? I mean, clear, yeah. I mean, this, this was his... Yeah. Yeah, that was his parish, right? I mean, that's his ministry parish. That's who he was. They, they, um, inmates referred to him as teacher, some of them as father, uh, you know, men who never had a father. Uh, some of them would call him sensei because, you know, he's Japanese, it's just, it's just teacher in Japanese, but, you know, to kind of show respect to his, his home of origin, uh, you know, but, um, but yeah, all, when you uh, have letters in our in our collection from from various inmates, and just tremendous respect for him as a sort of shepherd, either a father, or a teacher, or or mentor, or friend. Um, but yeah, it was very much his parish. I mean, that was um, when he started doing that ministry way way back. I'm kind of taking the story back to the early early years of it. Um, Dr. Reinerts at the seminary was incredibly supportive of Frankie, but um, like Frankie's thinking, his Frankie's drive and thinking, like this was so crazy for you know we talked about was prison ministry. This kind of ministry didn't you know a church might go minister to prisoners because you know so and so's nephews in prison, so the priest goes in to visit. You know there might be a chaplain, but there was no like prison ministry in those early days. And so, you know, Dr. Reinerts was trying to build on those connections that the South Carolina Senate had with Japan. He's writing letters to Japanese pastors. We've got this young man. He's in Christian education masters. We'll be sending him home. So he went home for a Christmas visit. which Back to Tokyo. Uh, yeah, while he was still in seminary. Okay. Um, and there are a lot of letters accompanying that trip where Dr. Reinerts was really trying to get him to reconnect with the churches in in Tokyo and in Japan, um, church leaders and stuff. And um, they met, he met with them while he was there, but he always wrote letters to Dr. Reinerts. I you know, appreciate your concern for me. Thank you for introducing me, but you know, the, the prison, this is my place. These are my people. This is, you know, kind of that, that attitude kind of ran under everything he wrote back. So even when the people who supported him most didn't really kind of understand what he was trying to do, um, I'm not sure he fully understood or really fully explained it. He just knew these people are forgotten, they're not loved, and Jesus loves them, so I'm going to go do that. Wow. And uh, so many people told him, you can't do that, it's dangerous, you're, you know, you're, and it just, 
Um, Sue Setzer, his friend Peter's wife, told me that um, she said she said Frankie was like the most generous person you would ever meet. Like every time he came to visit us, he would bring these huge gifts to our children. Um, he would, you know, he would, he would, uh, he went to visit their church and talk about his ministry, right? And he, he, Sue said he kicks me out of my kitchen and said, "I'm having a dinner at your house. Invite your your church vestry, like your board members, right, to dinner." And then he would go out and invite homeless people, and <laughs> he would come take over her kitchen, cook a dinner, and have this dinner prepared for these church vestry members and homeless people at this pastor's house. Wow! And um, he paid for all the food, right? That's just what you know. He he would he, he would throw these dinners for people who supported him and pay for it, and you know. Peter, his friend, asked him. Sue said, "Peter asked him, Frank, you can't keep doing this. You're, you're, you can't have that much. You're, you're going to run out of money.'" And he was like, "He said, no, no. He says, he says, he said, God shovels in, I shovel out. God has a bigger shovel. You know, it's just like it's it just that was his mentality. That was his life, and um, just kind of no, no fear, right? No, no, no fear. There's a, actually a story of." a time with a riot where a pastor actually got stuck in the library. A pastor went in to visit a young man who was connected to his church, talked with Frankie, you know, Frankie's there with him, and a riot happens. So they're locked in the in the library to stay safe. And uh, the pastor said when they were finally leaving, he said, I was so scared. He said, Frankie's walking through like nothing's going on. It just, so it just, it, it just, just incredible. Just, um, so yeah. Uh, it's a really incredible story. It really is an absolutely incredible story. Um, before we end today, I want to give a chance to talk some uh, about the archival materials, the projects that y'all worked on, and this documentary. So, Shannon, uh, as the as the archivist there, um, as the director of the archives, rather, at the Crumley Archives, what do y'all have related to uh, Frankie here? And if there are listeners who are interested in, you know, sort of studying uh, the history of his history, the history of uh, prison ministry. Um, uh, what do y'all have there? Uh, what's the policy for accessing the archives? That kind of stuff. So the collection that relates most to Frank Frankie and and is his own from his own pen is a series of newsletters known as Cell Fifty Five. And these are newsletters that he wrote, which include updates on his ministry, contain poetry, contains um, testimonies from prisoners. And why Cell 55? Cell 55, um, it was thought there's, I think there's um, some agreement that that was basically the last stop before death row. That's where he would have been ministering. So um, these these newsletters were created so that Frankie, in part, could send them to Lutheran congregations, parishes to support to, to his generate, ministry. Yeah, yeah, generate funding. Yeah, exactly. So we maintain and preserve those particular newsletters, and we've been able to supplement some with other manuscripts, letters. Scott mentioned. Yeah, we when um, when we started filming which we, we've got some well, some of the film some footage that we're going to be using in the documentary as we do it we want to make we want to get more footage as well but footage with interviewing Frankie Sue Setzer uh, former inmate that's out on you know got out on parole who knew him knew him for years in prison like 40 something years in prison um, former you know chaplains uh, people like that 
we have the footage on, you know, uh, just the raw footage of their interviews talking about Frankie's life. We have a lot of pictures, some that we got from Frankie's personal collection. I mean, he just had tons and tons of pictures. And then, like, even once we got started with this, um, I think it was somebody in the seminary office one day just dropped off a box. They were kind of cleaning out old files and said, hey, I saw something about Frankie's son in here. There's this box. So I, I'm literally got a stack, you know, an archival box, a medium-sized archival box worth of letters and documents of Frankie's that that's I wouldn't quite make that accessible to anybody yet because I've just tried to kind of put it in categories somewhat by date that that came in in the midst of everything else we're doing but definitely people could see you know we could show people through the newsletters the newsletters are incredible there's there's actually a book that's published uh, we didn't uh, we didn't have anything to do with that, that book but uh, Frankie did before we kind of came across the newsletters and got interested in the story. Um, there's a book that uses a lot of those newsletters. Uh, it's pretty much a kind of a compilation and a summation of, of what was in those newsletters over like 30, 40 years of ministry in the prison. So it's, um, yeah, th those are really interesting to see, to read. Um, and we're also going to have um, newspaper articles from the state and other local newspapers. Yeah, we do have that. Th those are pretty easy to see. We've got, yeah, we've got several articles in there and um, from Lutheran publications, state newspaper. Um, and then hopefully, as we continue, we, we can get this documentary done. We're, we're hoping we can get the funding enough to get. There's footage. Um, I know there's footage out there of Frankie actually teaching his class. Wow. Um, I'm just trying to track out, track down where that came from. I think I know where that came from. And then there's footage that I know where it is that we need to get licensed. Um, uh, of Frankie like putting on his Santa Claus suit and going out on a skateboard wow. through the through the halls of CCI. Wow. So, wow. so, so let's, in the last few minutes here talking, um, let's talk about the film. So, what is this? What y'all What are y'all trying to do here? Uh, tell us about the film. Um, with whom you're working on this? Uh, it, you know, if, is there a timetable for completion? So, um, Fisher Films is a local film company. Uh, Daniel Fisher actually graduated from USC in the, the media arts program. Um, he's the direct. He's the primary cinematographer and director and editor on this so far. Um, and uh, they do some incredible work. He actually has is finishing up and marketing right now a a, a history docu series on Miss South Carolina, which. I actually heard about on NPR. NPR interviewed him after they showed part of that at the, the Beaufort or Beaufort uh, Film Festival, uh, which we would like to get this done so that we could take it to that film festival and some others next year. Um, I'm hoping if we do that, maybe from there we might can make some connections with SCETV or something to, to kind of stir up interest because I think it's just such an incredible story. It really is an incredible story. Um, so that, I mean, that's where we're in the process. We have a lot of footage, um, probably 12 or 13 hours of, of raw footage of interviews, uh, former inmates, chaplains, former guards and prison directors, uh, people who've been in prison ministry, um, friends of Frankie, and we've got several more people we'd like to interview. We actually took, before Frankie, Frankie's really gone downhill these last several months. Last year, we were actually able to film him and while he had forgotten a lot, he was still fairly cheerful and friendly and liked to go out. 
Um, so we actually brought him over to the seminary and walked around the seminary and filmed him there. And we took him up to Angelo's. And uh, the manager at Angelo's, I told him, I was like, can we film him here? Like, he worked here back in the 60s when he was a student. We're making a film about him. So he let us come in and kind of film Frankie looking around at Angelo's. And then he brought him out a, a, a T-shirt from Angelo's. So that was pretty cool. But we've, um, so we've got a lot of the, the raw footage there. We, we still have more people we want to interview. That'll depend on how much funding we get. Um, for the sake of Fisher Films and my own work, we're kind of needing to wrap up kind of building on whatever funding we have and whatever footage we've managed to get, we can tell a good story. We've got a lot we can tell a good story with. Obviously, if we get full funding, we can tell a better story. We can get original music. And um, I've recently found out I can make contact with his sister who's still alive in Japan and very healthy. And it's a younger sister. She's in her 80s. Um, she has very good memory, memories of Frankie. She stayed in touch with him. She's come to visit him. So um, if we can get full funding, I'd love to to connect with her I, I actually have a friend who works in a film company in Japan believe it or not it's kind of like the way things work with Frankie's life he's like oh you need the, something the for Frankie and just kind of yeah, yeah. Um, so if we can get the funding for that we could probably even interview her but we'll, we'll see where that goes we would like to get it into um, that film festival and probably several others by next spring so that would really mean we need to be done filming yeah, November-ish um, and then that would give us a few months to kind of wrap up the editing and map out the rest of the storyline but so if listeners are interested in following the project supporting the project uh, how would they uh, find out how would they keep up with everything um, there the if you go to and I'm horrible with remembering websites but if you go to the the crumb if you look up the crumbly archives uh, website um, it has a, a link to special collections, okay. um, and it in there it says the Frankie Sun, Frankie Sun project. Is that how it's listed? And when you click there, there's like a trailer that right. we that Fisher Films has already done for the for the documentary. Um, there's a donate button. Right. Uh, there's um, we're still updating, but you can even see like at least as of a few months ago, what was organized in the kind of the document and photo collection. Not all, you can't see it all in there, but there's a few, there's a few, um, a few of his newsletters scanned in and then things like that that you can view. Um, so it, it's several things there with the Frankie Sun Project on the on the archives website. Fantastic. Well, uh, I'll look that up and we'll be sure to put a link in the description of the show notes about everything. So uh, listeners who are interested can go check that out. Y'all, this has been an absolutely wonderful story. Uh, I, I know this is fascinating. It's so, it's really one of the more interesting stories. I mean, there are all these, that's the that's just, it's this thing where there are all these fascinating unknown stories of these incredible little known people. And it's so great when we can shine light on one of those. Frankie San certainly deserves the light shine on him there. Shannon Smith, Scott Reeves, thank y'all for joining us here on thank Take On South. Thank you for having us. This is Matt Simmons saying until next time, y'all take it easy. That was our Take on the South. Let us know yours. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at U of SC South. Take on the South is produced by Matt Simmons of the Institute for Southern Studies 
Special thanks to Professor Dave Garner of the University of South Carolina School of Music for composing our music. Tune in next time for another Take on the South. Thank you.